Mark, that's <clears throat> extremely kind of you. Uh, I appreciate that very much from uh, both Cindy and I uh, getting a chance to be able to be here together and uh, to be able to see you and to be able to be a part of it. Uh, I did have the opportunity to be able to sit down with Mark when I first came and said, I need to tell you a story. Uh, the, the, uh, the story of just kind of the journey of how I got to Congress after serving 22 years in youth ministry. Uh, I've yet to run into anyone that have said, if you want to be senator one day, you should be a youth pastor first for a couple of decades because that's really the route to being in the Senate. Uh, but I, I sat down with Mark, as you mentioned, in his office at Ebenezer's and, uh, and just said, I need to tell you a story. Uh, and part of the journey was a friend of mine that handed me a book called The Wild Goose Chase and handed that to me and said, you ought to read this. I think you would enjoy it. And he had no idea that I was struggling with a calling to be able to come to Washington, D.C. And uh, so when I sat down with Mark and said, you, you were part of this journey and didn't even know it. Uh, so if it goes sideways, I'm completely blaming you uh, in the process on this, Mark. Uh, but here, here's, I, I want to be able to walk through and tell the story a little bit. And this will be for Cindy and I. And uh, for us and for our family, we consider this a calling and a part of who we are uh, in this process. Uh, so to be able to help us out with this, Cindy's also going to be here for questions at the end of this. Uh, and I'm going to try to save as much time as I can for some Q&A for us to be able to run through as many questions. Uh, so if at any point you start getting bored with what I'm talking about in a short period of time, just kind of linger off in your mind and start coming up with some questions. And uh, just know that Cindy and I are going to both do that in a second. So let me let her slip out for a second. And, uh, and then she'll slip back in for the, for the question time here as well. Uh, welcome to our home, by the way. At any point, uh, it is not unlikely that my dog is going to walk into the frame at any point as well. So if that happens, you'll also have the, uh, the opportunity to be able to enjoy uh, that part of our family as well. So let me walk you through a little bit of a story and tell you this journey. For Cindy and I, we served 22 years in youth ministry. Uh, we love directing the Falls Creek Youth Camp. It is the largest Christian camp in America. We have about 5,000 students a week that come. It's not unusual for us during the summer to see 2,000 people come to Christ. Uh, if you're in youth ministry, it is the place to be able to be. Uh, and it was our absolute joy to be able to be a part of a ministry like that and to be around so many great folks. Uh, but it was a very odd season for us in 2008 that we suddenly started hearing God say to us the same thing over and over again. It was for Cindy and I both. Every time we sat down to pray, every time we read scripture, every time we were at church, it's as if the Spirit of God was saying the same thing over and over again to us. Get ready. Now, if you hear get ready from God, it's pretty exciting to hear for a couple of weeks. Uh, it may be even exciting for a month, uh, but it was about seven months that every time I sat down to pray, every time I'm reading scripture, it was the same phrase over and over again. And by the time you hear the same phrase over and over, get ready, it's not fun anymore, it's unsettling. Uh, because for us, by the time we got to that point of struggling through this, I really didn't know where we were going. I was in Eastern Oklahoma uh, at a Sea at the Pole rally in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. If you know where that is, bonus points for you. Uh, but I was driving back home from Okmulgee after speaking at a Sea at the Pole event, and I just shut off the radio for two hours and I basically complained with God and said, God, I've been trying to hear you. I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to figure this out. And for months, it feels like you've said the same thing and I don't know what this means. Got home late that night, slipped into study at our house and uh, just started reading some of the news that night. And uh, it was just the news of the day, just online, just normal stuff. But in the middle of just reading through the news, there was a little story about the person who was in my congressional district at that time uh, that was considering running for governor two years later. Now, it was just a little gossip story more than anything else, just to be able to mention that. And it was one story of just 
many that I read that night. But as I read that story, it's as if the Spirit of God poked me in the chest and said, that's what I want you to do. Now, it wasn't loud to my ears, but it was loud to my soul. There was no thunder. There was no lightning. But I knew that was God's voice. I taught students for 20 years. And before that, I mentored other folks and tried to be able to teach them one simple thing. You should learn how God speaks to you. Because I really believe that when God said, come follow me, that wasn't just a set of principles. He meant me. Come follow me when he said it. That means he, he's going to guide us, that he's going to instruct us, that what he said to the disciples at the end, come follow me, was the same thing he said at the very beginning to the disciples when he said, come follow me. That didn't change. When he met Matthew at the tax collector's booth, he said, come follow me. When he saw Simon Peter, he said, come follow me at the very beginning, but also at the very end, walking at the Sea of Galilee, when he's about to ascend, Jesus still said the same thing to Peter that he said at the very beginning, come follow me. There's something to this. Jesus said, my disciples are like my sheep. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. If you're a person that hasn't learned God's voice, I think it's exceptionally important for you to be able to sit down and spend some time in prayer and in his word and to be able to say, God, I don't want to just follow your principles. I want to know how to follow you. That's something that I taught people for a long time. But sitting down that night, it absolutely shook, shook me to my soul to hear him say, that's what I want you to do. And it was Congress. Now, there are lots of places that I would expect him to call me to. I didn't expect that one. It was so much of a shock to my system that I didn't even tell Cindy, and we talk about everything, but that night, I didn't even tell her what God had said to me. But three days later, I couldn't shake it. I still heard this rattling voice of God saying to me, come follow me. Three days later, I went back to my study. I sat down at the computer. I literally started just typing in the 5th Congressional District of Oklahoma, thinking, I don't know the boundaries. I don't know the population. I don't know the people. I, I was the nerdy kid that read the newspaper growing up. I was in speech and debate. I was, since the fourth grade, I, I was into all the different policy areas, but I'd never run for any political office in any way, in any type, not even student council. I wasn't involved in anything in politics at all. <laughs> we voted. We occasionally showed up at a town hall meeting for our local congressman. That was it. And so for us to be able to hear, this is what's going to be next to you. I sat down at the computer thinking, I don't even know what this means. So I'm sitting at the computer looking at all the different data and just trying to figure out the boundaries of the 5th Congressional District. My wife comes in, looks over my shoulder, sees the computer screen, and just sees all the numbers on it and says to me, what are you looking at? I just said, county statistics. Thinking, I don't even know how to answer this question. I expected her to say, next, why are you looking at that? But instead, she hesitated for a long time and then said, we're about to run for Congress, aren't we? And all I can say is, what makes you say that? And she said, I don't know. I just know that's what we're supposed to do. Now, you'll meet Cindy a little bit more here in a minute, and you'll understand she's not been political in the background at all. We sat down that night. Obviously, I told her the story of what had happened three days ago uh, to me on that. And we determined at the end of that night, we were going to pray about this for a month. And this was literally for me. This was like a Mount Moriah moment. And I really believed at the beginning of it, uh, we were going to go to the top of Mount Moriah with Isaac. And when we got to the top, God was going to say, just kidding. Here's the ram. You don't have to kill Isaac. But instead, we got to the top of Mount Moriah. And he was like, oh, no, we're killing Isaac this time. 
there is no RAM. We're going to do something totally different. We're not going to do what you've done for the last 20 years. So that one month of prayer became about six months of us struggling through this. And by the end of it, all I remember saying is to Cindy, when we left church one day, I'm going to be an old man one day telling my grandchildren about the time I didn't follow God if I don't do this. Now, I tell you all that story because I've met a lot of people on the Hill because then uh, I've heard similar stories from them about God's call. For Cindy and I, immediately after we made the commitment, and that March day in March of 2009, that we're going to run for Congress in 2010. On that March day, when we made the commitment, we began praying then, God, we are willing to go alone, but we would love to serve with other believers that are there. If you're calling us, would you call others as well, like you've called us, to be able to be there, to be staff, to be interns, to be members of Congress, to be on the Hill, to be able to do this. We'll, we'll go alone, but God, it would be great to have a community that was there as well. We prayed that through the entire campaign. And when we got to Congress in January of 2011, I was overwhelmed with the number of members that I met that had just been elected in 2010 that shared their story of God's interruption in their life and what God had done to call them there. I've been amazed at the number of staff members that I've met that talk about God's call there and how they thought about doing something different, but they felt overwhelmed to be able to be here. That is for a purpose. I have to tell you, I had a lot of people in my life that caught me and said, after 22 years of ministry, you're leaving the ministry. I had to struggle with that a lot during the campaign to say, God, I don't think I'm leaving the ministry. The first calling to any of us is not to a task, it's to a person. My first decision as a Christian is not what I'm going to do to serve God, it's who am I going to follow. I believe firmly that God doesn't call us to an occupation, he calls us to himself. He assigns occupation, but our calling for our life remains the same. We're called to follow him. That's what our calling is. Now, he has me in a place that I didn't expect 20 years ago but I'm still doing the same thing now that I was doing 20 years ago, trying to follow him. This is what he's got us doing. So for all of you and whatever tasks that you have, if you get caught up in what office you serve in and what task you're doing and what your title is at this point, I think you've missed the calling of God. He calls us first to himself and second assigns us to different pathways as we go through this process. It's been interesting to see the number of people that have had a, a similar experience to that to be able to walk through what it means to really be able to walk with God. But this calling that I had interrupted other things that I was doing. And so people said, you've left the ministry. So it put me on a journey to be able to figure out, does God care about government? Does he care about these things? And it was interesting to note, as I looked through the Old Testament, 36 of the 39 books of the Old Testament were written to, by, or about a political leader. Let me run that past you again. 36 of the 39 books of the Old Testament were written to, by, or about a political leader. Moses, the leader of the nation, obviously writing the first five books of the Torah. You've got the prophets, often are a prophet first to political leaders. David writing, uh, all these books of the Psalms, uh, Solomon writing. You've, you've got all these political leaders that are either the writer or the recipient of this word of God from the Old Testament. 39 of the 30, uh, 36 of the 39 books. We'll get to the New Testament. One third of the pages of the New Testament, the book of Acts and the book of Luke, were written to a political leader. His name is Theopolis. A third of the New Testament. When you go to Saul, struck blind on the way to Damascus, 
He's struck blind, goes in, uh, goes in, is blind for three days, fasting, praying. God speaks to the prophet and says to him, go to this man on straight street. He's going to actually be somebody that you need to be able to restore his sight. He's been praying and he's seen in a vision you coming. Immediately the prophet responds back to God. Uh, do you know who this guy is? This is a bad guy. He's come to kill all of us. Why am I going to lay hands on him? God's response to him is, I know exactly who he is. He is my chosen instrument to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Gentile kings. The rest of the book of Acts, you see that repeated over and over again with Paul. Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue. He ends up getting kicked out. He goes to the Gentiles and ends up before political leaders sharing this faith. Over and over and over again through the book of Acts, you see people that are engaged in political leadership. It seems very obvious to me that God cares about what happens in politics because politics affects people and God has a great affection for people. So of course he does. Government's one of the inventions of God. Why would he not care about this? Now, we're not trying to create a theocracy in America, but we are trying to be, raise up leaders who follow God and who live as people that follow God, that not only have a faith, but live their faith regardless of where they are. That challenge is something I try to set before as many different staffers, as many different members as I can. I sat down with Mark after uh, his book, The Circle Maker, and told him, I circle my floor. Now, we'd never talked about it before, but I do that. I, 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 maybe people are more spiritual than I am. They pray for all 100 senators. I pray for all of them that are on my floor, and I walk my floor praying for each of them and their families and for their staff, and that's kind of the area that I claim and say, God, I'm going to continue to be able to circle this area uh, to be able to make sure I'm trying to keep the, the main thing the main thing for me, that I don't lose perspective, that there are people here that are struggling, that don't know God, that need to, and are interested in this, if only there's someone around them that will be able to talk and engage. It's something I see many staff members engage with other staff members just in normal conversation. I've had the opportunity to be able to see a member of Congress come to Christ. I've had the opportunity to be able to see a diplomat come to Christ. I've had the opportunity to be able to see a lobbyist come to Christ. I've had the opportunity to be able to sit down with other senators and say, I'm in a really a big struggle moment in my life and just to be able to sit down and to be able to pray and talk and give me the opportunity to be able to tell them about a good, faithful God who can be trusted. This is what we're called to do. This is where we are. But we live it based on a basic principle of two things that I would lay in front of this group. I don't read anywhere in the scripture that we love our neighbor as ourself unless you're in politics. There is no exception. For those of us that are called to be on the Hill, we know that the Hill is completely foreign to what politics or what we are completely foreign to what politics really is on the Hill. We're trying to be able to live out the greatest commandment while we actually put into practice legislative priorities. You don't have to violate the greatest commandment to be able to work on roads and bridges. You don't have to violate the greatest commandment to be able to work on budgets. You don't have to violate the greatest commandment even as you disagree with someone. We can love others. Christ has loved us. We can express the forgiveness that we have been given in the lives of others and to be able to set a different tone for the hill. I believe that when God called us to be salt and light, he meant it. And for all the folks that said, I can't believe you're in Washington, D.C., that's such a dark place. I typically will smile at them and say, gosh, it's really unlike God for him to send light to dark places. So for any of you that are called to be around it, there's a reason that you're in this spot. 
that he has called Light to Dark Places. And I would encourage you to be able to take it up. One last thing, and then I want to take some questions on. And Cindy and I will take these together. If there's any really hard questions, she'll take the hard ones. I'll take the easy <laughs> ones. Uh, but I, I want to be able to lay one thing in front of you that I want us to consider. It comes from the book of First Peter, and it's a passage of scripture that I can't shake in this setting. Because in First Peter chapter 2, it's an exceptionally familiar passage to all of us because it talks about, you know, your chosen people, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, all those things. And then he puts this, this calling to us. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. And D.C. is definitely a place where the siren song of the angriest, the loudest, the most bitter gets all the attention. It's definitely a place that wars against your soul. Then Peter says this, live such good lives among the pagans against the, those nations. It's basically that the, the term is the nations that don't believe. Live such good lives among the nations that don't believe that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. To live such a different life on the hill that you would stand out so that people would come to know Christ based on how we do it. Then I believe Peter gave four examples immediately after that to say, here's how you can live such a good life that you'll stand out even in a culture that doesn't understand God. The very next verse is honor authority. The very next verse. I think there's a reason for that. He's saying, this is a way that you can set a difference. Now, you're going to be on the hill. You're going to be part of authority. But that also means you're going to be engaged in it. I challenge folks consistently. We want to stand out in our culture. We handle government. We handle how we interact with each other. And we live as people that have been forgiven and forgive others. That will stick out in D.C. and will provide an opportunity to be able to share the gospel like nothing else will. It's a good thing to be able to live honest, good lives. But if you live a life that's uniquely separated, that we honor authority, that we engage with people, we love our neighbors ourselves, it will provide us to be able to tell the good news about a God who has forgiven us of much.